You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Pareal for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. I'm Fiona from Drake University. Here is our first story. This story is by David Golbitz, and it's called Council Bluffs Hopes Murals Create Community Around Trail. The Iowa West Foundation, through its public art program, has cultivated a number of art installations, sculptures, signs, and murals throughout Council Bluffs since 2007. Art projects span from River's Edge to Fairmount Park, and the city's First Avenue Trail project presented another platform with which to show off the community's creativity. The work that the city was doing on First Avenue became an opportunity to get murals in a new way, where we could pivot and work with local artists and try to take what was otherwise the back of buildings where people felt like there was less pressure to try something different and to get some great art out in the community. Iowa's West Matt Hanks told a non in an interview. For Hanks, the vice president of grants and initiatives for the foundation, public art is all about creating a sense of community for the city's residents. In our estimation, trails are a great way to not only improve the place, but they create this activity. They create a sense of wonder and a sense of discovery, Hanks said. That's really important in creating great places, to have those opportunities to encounter something interesting and exciting that makes you want to go further down the trail and further through the downtown. Iowa West's initial plan was to develop more public art in downtown Council Bluffs, such as the riverboat mural on the northeast-facing outer wall of the Western Iowa Mutual Insurance on Pearl Street. But that project stalled during the pandemic, and the First Avenue Trail provided a chance for a new beginning. We know that success kind of requires a layering of things and the creation of that connectivity, so our hope was that the murals would become another layer of the downtown. And I think what we're seeing is that is that happen on the First Avenue Trail with the murals, Hanks said. My hope is that over time, as people see what that represents, that it does even unlock future opportunities in the downtown as well. Hanks said that once Iowa Western agreed to fund the First Avenue murals using the money previously set aside for more downtown art, the project was turned over to city officials to curate artists and speak with property owners along the trail about using their buildings as canvases. Council Bluffs Chief of Staff Brandon Garrett, whom Hanks credits for making the First Avenue Trail a reality, enlisted Turner Morgan of the 712 Initiative to help find local muralists who might be interested in the project. Morgan's first call was to well-known Omaha artist Wadey White to ask for suggestions. It's all word of mouth, Morgan said. Everyone knows each other, which is really cool. It's a really tight-knit community. White provided Morgan with some names to get him started, and then those artists pointed him to other artists, and eventually Morgan had a bunch of applications to sift through. One by one, I'd meet them on the trail, Morgan said. I thought it was important they get to walk the trail, get a feel for it. I'd say, hey, here's the deal. What walls are you interested in? Some artists gravitate towards certain walls more than others, you know, or a certain concept that might have spoke to them. Morgan, along with city officials and the building owners, then selected the four artists, quote, with the strongest applications, and got to work honing in their designs. Over the next four issues, the non will introduce the four artists whose work can be seen along the First Avenue Trail, Betney Kalk, Ilaman Pelshaw, Danny Rays, and Weston Thompson. As for the artists who didn't make the cut this time, Morgan said that he's staying in touch with them for what he hopes will be an ongoing project. 
pretty much everyone I met is very capable of selling art. So hopefully this year we can keep that momentum going and install some more, Morgan said. And at the beginning of the story, there are a couple of pictures of these murals here at the top. Um, there's a lady walking her dog through a park. There's some pink flowers that are up front, and you can see a horse in the background. Um, and that picture is titled, Artist Betty Cox Rail Rails to Trails Evolution of Transportation at 15 um, South 20th Street. The next picture is of um, a bulldozer of some sort, and it has some kind of modern graphics and lettering going on, a lot of different colors, uh, blues and yellows and reds. Um, and that one is called Artist Weston Thompson's Dream Builder. Um, the third picture here has uh, three children. One of them's holding a drill, and there's some sunflowers in front of them. Um, and that one's titled Artist Danny Ray's Empowering Youth for Global Change. And the final mural that's pictured here um, is on kind of a shorter building. It looks like a train station, and it um, says Council Bluffs. It has a lot of pinks and reds and yellows, um, and it's called Artist Illumins Pelshaw's The Fabric of Council Bluffs at 3415 West Broadway. This next story here is called New Owners Seek Input on St. Mark's Property. It's by Tim Rower. A former church building on Bennett Avenue has new owners who are looking forward to meeting their neighbors. Pete and Caitlin Matthews will be holding an open house Thursday at 5.30 p.m. at the former St. Mark's United Methodist Church to gather input on future use of the church building. I'm inviting the public for personal conversations on what can be developed for that property, Pete Matthews told the nonpareil. I'm calling it an evening listening project. It's very informal. The Matthewses have real estate experience and recently closed on the purchase of 2.5 acres at 15 Bennett Avenue. The property includes a former residence in addition to the church. The property had been well cared for, Pete Matthews said. It was just vacant. St. Mark's closed in fall 2022 because of the dwindling number of congregation members. I'm hoping to hear from anybody on what Council Bluffs needs at that address, Pete Matthews said. Concepts that the couple has considered include a daycare facility or retail space. They would be open to it being a church again, too. Some indoor cosmetic renovations he oversaw have created a, quote, basic church, unquote, look that could be appealing for any denomination interested in a new address, Pete Matthews said. I'm inviting area churches to take a look at it, he said. For those unable to make the open house, which will run for about 90 minutes, he said ideas can be sent by email to pete at kingstable.homes. I want to get ideas from the public, he said. This is a new chance for St. Mark's on what it could be in the future. And to the right of this, there's a picture of the St. Mark's Church. Um, it's captioned, The new owners of the closed St. Mark's United Methodist Church will be holding an open house on Thursday to seek public input on possible future uses for the structure and the surrounding grounds. The next story is called uh, the Southwest Iowa Transit Agency, abbreviated SWIDA, Driver Helps CB Residents Thrive. Some people must rely on others to help them live life to the fullest. Southwest Iowa Transit Agency lead driver Max Smelser is a person to rely on for many in Council Bluffs. Smelser runs many bus routes for disabled individuals in the community, according to a story from the Transit Agency. Seeing the bus pull up to the VODC one Wednesday morning, you can immediately see the care Smelzer puts into his work. He took time to make sure each rider got off the bus safely and comfortably. One rider went onto the lift with a walker, and Smelzer made sure he held the proper support bar on the way down. 
another onto the lift in a mobility chair, which he positioned properly. Yet another rider that needed some balance support going down the stairs of the bus, grabbing onto his arms. Smelzer has been driving for Swida for around 14 years, and prior to that, he had a 42-year career with Omaha Standard. I just need something to do, Smelzer said. I really enjoy doing this. Asked about what he enjoys about being a driver, Smell said, It's the people. I've gotten to know a lot of classy people, he said. Some of the riders have some difficult problems to deal with, and I like being able to help them. Smelzer is a valuable member of the Swida team as a lead driver. He helps train new drivers, maintain the bus barn in Council Bluffs, and transport vehicles to the shop and around the area as needed. He has lived in the Council Bluffs area his entire life, residing in the same house for 40 years. He will be married 58 years this year and has three children and numerous grandchildren. You can tell Smelzer has a great rapport with his riders, giving one a hard time about the Chiefs game as he boarded with his jersey on. Swida is always looking for great drivers like Smelzer. Apply at swida.com. And to the right, or I'm sorry, to the left of that story is a picture of the driver, Max Smelzer, and it's captioned, uh, Max Smelzer is the lead driver in Council Bluffs for the Southwest Iowa Transit Agency. Um, he's pictured in his bus there, smiling at the camera and with his hand on the wheel. This next story is called Adair Police Chief Convicted. It's by Dan Chrysler. A federal court jury convicted a small-town Iowa police chief for abusing his position to unlawfully acquire and sell federally regulated machine guns. The jury convicted Adair Police Chief Brad Went, 47, on 11 of 15 charges. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Iowa, which is headed by Richard Westfall, said Went used his positions to obtain dozens of machine guns not available on the general public. Wentz convictions include conspiring to make false statements to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, making false statements to the ATF, and illegally possessing a belt-fed M60 machine gun. The attorney's office said the crimes date back to when Wentz became police chief in July 2018 and occurred until August 2022. They said Wentz filed dozens of law letters to the ATF, requesting to purchase or demonstrate 90 guns for use by the department. In a court brief, the attorney's office said Went falsely stated in the letters that the guns would be used only by the police department, which staffed the full-time equivalent of three positions, including part-timers, and the demonstrations of the guns was only for potential purchase by the department. The attorney's office said some of the guns Went bought were for his own federally licensed firearms shops, BW Outfitters in Denison. The attorney's office said one of the guns Went bought was a 50 caliber machine gun that he mounted on his personal armored Humvee. In a stark abuse of the position of trust he held, Brad Went exploited his position as chief of police to unlawfully obtain and sell guns for his own personal profit, said FBI Omaha special agent in charge Eugene Cole said in a statement. When so many law enforcement... Officers in our country are working to protect our communities and uphold the law. Brad Went did exactly the opposite. The transfer and possession of machine guns made after May 1986 are generally illegally the illegal, the attorney's office said. The office added that law enforcement agencies can buy machine guns for their official use and authorized dealers can get machine guns to demonstrate to a police department for the department's future possible purchase. Wentz defense attorney, Nick Kleinfeld, pushed back on many of the attorney's office's findings. Speaking with the Omaha World-Herald, he said the count of 90 guns cited by the attorney's office is inaccurate and includes double counting. 
Quote, the real number is that he bought 10 for the Adair Police Department and sold four, unquote, to licensed dealers approved by the ATF, Kleinfeld said. He added, Went was transparent in his letters and proactive in reaching out to the ATF. Kleinfeld called the jury's decision a, quote, split verdict, according to the Associated Press, saying jurors found his client acted in good faith and didn't intend to be dishonest to the ATF. Quote, Unfortunately, the jury did find that some of Brad's subsequent statements were technically false and that he broke the law by bringing a machine gun he purchased with his own funds for the Adair Police Department to a machine gun shoot that was available to both the public and law enforcement, Kleinfeld told the AP. Each false statement charge and conspiracy charge carries a penalty of up to five years in prison. Illegal possession of a gun carries a penalty of up to 10 years in prison. Went is scheduled to be sentenced on June 14th. Kleinfeld said they plan to appeal Wendt's convictions. He said Wendt was unconstitutionally convicted and his case should be overturned. Quote, there are some complex legal issues here, Kleinfeld said. We feel good about our chances on appeal. Kleinfeld said Wendt has been a law enforcement officer since 1999 following his father in the field. As of Friday, Wendt remains Adair's police chief, city attorney Clint Fitcher said. He said no decisions have yet been made on Wendt's employment status. Fitcher said that Adair City Council has supported Went through his legal proceedings. I know that everybody feels it's an unfortunate turn of events, Fitcher said. Another man, Robert Williams, was also indicted in the case, the AP reported, but his charges were dismissed last year. In a statement, Westfall said, No one relishes seeking criminal prosecution of a law enforcement officer. However, with the oath of public service comes the accountability of putting the public trust at the forefront of this duty an oath that most officers zealously pursue every day with honor, Westfall said. If an individual law enforcement officer is the exception to this rule, then we should not shirk from holding them accountable. This next story is from the Midlands Humane Society. It's called Now is the Perfect Time to Foster. It's by Maria Garcia. Spring is fast approaching the Midwest, and soon we will be enjoying the longer days and warmer weather. With spring also comes a lot of brand new, bouncing bundles of joy in the animal world, and Midlands Humane Society is starting to prepare for the upcoming influx of babies. Kitten season is fast approaching and typically lasts from March through October each year. Cats' heat cycles last about seven days, and their pregnancies are around two months long. This means that each kitten season, thousands of kittens can be produced. In 2023, between March and October, there were about 277 kittens that came through the doors of MHS. While staff and volunteers love cuddling and playing with adorable little kittens, a humane society is not an appropriate environment for youngsters to grow in. Young animals, like humane babies, have a weakened immune system and are more prone to getting sick. With so many animals coming in daily that have unknown medical histories, it is important to keep those most vulnerable away from the general population. A significant way to make that happen is by utilizing foster homes to give kittens, and puppies too, a safe place to grow, socialize, and learn in a home environment without the risks that come with staying in the shelter for several weeks. If you are at a point where you are considering welcoming a pet to your home, but don't want to take the big leap of adopting, Becoming a foster volunteer may be for you. Foster volunteers provide their home, time, and love to the animals they are fostering, and MHS will provide all other supplies. You will be sent home with all of the food, bedding, toys, litter, and anything else needed to care for the cats and kittens that are being fostered. 
Fosters will also need to be able to transport the animals to and from the shelter for regular veterinary checkups and vaccines. On average, kittens will spend four to six weeks in foster care before they are old enough to undergo their spay or neuter surgery to be placed up for adoption. This time frame can be extended if the foster is interested in taking in neonatal kittens or kittens that will require bottle feeding if they do not have a mother and are not old enough to support themselves on their own. So, how do you become a foster volunteer? The process is rather simple. The first step will be to complete a foster volunteer application via an online link that will be sent to you by our volunteer and foster care coordinator, Derek Rollins. You can request this application by emailing him directly at drollins at midlandshumanesociety.org. If your application is accepted, the next part of the process will be to schedule a home visit. Per Iowa code, a home visit must be completed before foster animals can be placed. After that, foster volunteers will attend an orientation to learn more about MHS, the need of fostering, and how to become a successful foster volunteer. Keep in mind that while MHS is in need of cat and kitten volunteers specifically during these coming months, we also accept fosters for dogs who are healing from injuries or are going through treatments, dogs with behaviors that can be managed easier in a home environment, and, of course, mother dogs and their litters of puppies. As a perk, fosters also have the first chance to make an adoption official with the animal in their care. Fostering helps pets get accustomed to life in a home, smooths their way towards adoption, and helps set them up for success in their future homes. Opening your home to a foster pet helps save lives and allows you the satisfaction of helping through the most important part of a young animal's journey in finding their forever home. Consider becoming a foster volunteer today. MHS Pets of the Week are Evie, who is a seven-year-old spayed female German Shepherd who loves her people and will love to be by your side day and night. She is tolerant of other dogs, but prefers to spend her time in a playgroup independently. King is a five-year-old neutered male pit bull who has been with MHS for more than 100 days. He may not present himself well in his kennel, but this dude is truly a big sweetheart. He is very laid back and does well with other laid back dogs. He will need to be adopted to an area without a breed ban. Luna is a two-year-old spayed female lab mix who has a vibrant and playful personality that's always ready for a round of fetch or a nice cuddle session. Denali is a two-and-a-half-year-old neutered male husky who is full of personality and can't wait to sing to you. He is very outgoing, friendly, and will be a great exercise partner for an active owner. He can be selective with his dog friends. MHS is open weekdays from noon to 6 p.m. and Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Check out our available pets online by visiting our website at midlandshumanesociety.org slash adopt. Now, at the, picture, at the top of this article are pictures of the four dogs that I just read about, um, Evie, King, Luna, and Denali. This next story is also about uh, local cats. It's called Help Sought After Cat 18 Cats Abandoned in Carter Lake. Rescue organizations are asking for donations to help 18 cats saved from an abandoned trailer home in Carter Lake. Isaiah Langworthy of Muddy Paws Second Chance Rescue said the cats were left for about a month in the locked structure before they were discovered last week by a worker at the trailer park. The worker, who asked to remain anonymous, gave the cats some food and water and reached out to Muddy Paws. What we found was absolutely horrific, Langworthy said. Several inches of feces covered the floor and the smell of ammonia was overpowering. They also found five dead cats, one a newborn kitten. One cat had been eaten. The former residents also had left on the gas on the stove. 
Langworthy said the cats were so filthy that the rescue crew couldn't tell their color. They all appeared to be gray because they weren't able to clean themselves due to dehydration. He said he cried as he walked through the trailer and observed the conditions. He and Robert Sisser, Paul Sisser, and Terry Larson of Muddy Paws spent more than three hours removing the cats. The fact that any of them survived is a miracle, Langworthy said. The volunteers within Muddy Paws that all responded, we, re we combined have about 60 years of rescue experience. None of us have seen anything like this. The cats were at first taken to the Carter Lake Animal Control Shelter before a few other rescues stepped in to help. Five cats went to Jeanette Hunt Blair Animal Rescue and six others to Solace. Muddy Paws is caring for seven. All the cats have health issues and none are spayed or neutered. All are suffering from malnutrition. Langworthy said rescues are already overwhelmed with animals, so donations are crucial for veterinarian medicine and food bills. Langworthy is caring for two of the cats at his home. Xavier, a male, has begun taking antibiotics for ringworm and a urinary infection and could be ready to adopt in a week or so. These cats aren't feral, as you might expect, Langworthy said. These cats are loving. They were purring. They were letting us hold them, he said. The male I've had since Wednesday, he will curl up on my lap and give me all sorts of love. And to the right of this uh, story are three pictures of these cats. One of them is in the trailer. Um, it says, Isaiah Langworthy, a director of Muddy Paws, Second Chance Rescue, said conditions in the trailer were horrendous. And then there's two pictures of the cats they found. One of them's white and one of them's orange. This next set of stories is from The Opinion. Uh, the first one is from the Kansas City Star, and it's called Super Bowl Gunfire Must Lead to Change. Even after at least nine children were treated for gunshot wounds at a Kansas City hospital, Missouri Republicans still won't address the state's loose gun laws. And that stubborn resistance is irresponsible, if not outright dangerous. One day, after a mass shooting in Kansas City left one woman dead and 22 others injured by gunfire, including nearly a dozen minors under the age of 16, top GOP lawmakers and Governor Mike Parson shrugged their shoulders at the calamity. The tone-deaf reaction to the shooting from leading Republicans wasn't all that surprising. When it comes to sensible gun laws, the GOP reacts with the stubbornness of a Missouri mule, the state's official animal, and that bullheadedness was on full display. During an interview with a local radio host in Kansas City, Parson never bothered to use the word gun. He did, however, use language we all should condemn when describing the suspects. What happened yesterday with those thugs is not who we are in Missouri, Parson told radio host Pete Mundo of Casey Moe Talk Radio. Dog whistle? You bet. We found it difficult to ignore Parson's screed, which continued, You just got some absolutely... Be careful what I say before I say something I'm going to probably regret. But just a bunch of criminals, thugs out there, just killing people at an incident like that and attempting to kill all those people and created such chaos that people got hurt being trampled. On X, State Senator Bill Igel, a candidate for Missouri governor, echoed Parsons' questionable talking points, erroneously writing, One good guy with a gun could have stopped the evil criminals who opened fire on the crowd immediately. Guns don't kill people. Thugs and criminals kill people. More than 800 law enforcement officials worked the chief Super Bowl victory parade, according to Kansas City Police. Not even a heavy police presence could deter these shooters from opening fire, debunking the stale, quote, good guy with a gun myth. Gun safety is not a matter of right versus left or conservative versus liberal, nor should the debate fall along party lines. 
when kids are seriously injured by gunfire and an innocent mother is killed, lawmakers have a duty to address ways to prevent these sorts of shootings. Not in Missouri, though. Here, no permit is necessary for anyone over the age of 18 to carry a concealed weapon. No training is required either. Background checks are not mandated. According to anti-gun violence advocates, this unfettered access to guns contributes to a record number of homicides in Kansas City, 185 killings last year. Kansas City's mass shooting victims ranged from 8 to 47, according to Kansas City police. Half of the victims were under 16. Law-abiding citizens in Missouri who own guns need not worry. No one has a right to take your firearm from you. But people under 21 should not have the right to carry a concealed handgun or rifle without the proper training, permit, or a background check. There's a couple short blurbs here under a, a section called Your Views. The first one's from Joe Bielek in Ohio. Uh, it's called Take Regional Approach for Primaries. A political primary is a preliminary election in which the registered voters of a political party nominate candidates for office. The key word here is, quote, preliminary. The current systems allow small states such as Iowa and New Hampshire, assisted by the media, to award front-runner status to the victorious candidate. From there, the candidates travel a path determined by which states want to leapfrog the others by moving up their primary dates. Candidates are whisked across the country without any real ability to distinguish regional issues from national issues. Consequently, party platforms are determined by a make-it-up-as-you-go approach. If the primary process were organized on a regional basis, candidates would be able to study the regional issues, campaign to confirm those issues, and then receive votes based on the solutions they propose. A regional approach would also prevent a premature selection of a, if a front-runner because success in one region certainly would not guarantee success in the next region. This would also further validate the process because each state would still have a say all the way down to the end. Finally, the number of delegates awarded in each state should be determined by the percentage of votes won by each candidate, and yes, convert the caucuses to primaries. Accordingly, the political primaries should occur between January and June of each presidential election year. Each of the six regions would be assigned a particular month. A lottery held in June of the previous year would determine which months each region holds its primaries. This next blurb is called Shining Light on Low Vision Awareness Month, and it's by Nina Rongash of Omaha. February is Low Vision Awareness Month. Not only is it a time to shed light on the challenges faced by individuals living with visual impairments, it also raises awareness of how capable low and no vision individuals are in reaching their professional and personal goals. Low vision or no vision affects millions of Americans, with 15,000 of those individuals residing in southwest Iowa and eastern Nebraska regions. This month serves as an opportunity to raise awareness about the importance of inclusivity, accessibility, and understanding for those with low vision and vision loss. At Outlook Enrichment, our mission is to positively impact everyone who is blind or visually impaired. As the largest employer of blind and visually impaired individuals in the region, we see firsthand how providing opportunities to blind and low vision people positively impacts lives. Supporting people with vision loss is not only about helping them overcome physical limitations. It also includes breaking down barriers and advocating for equal opportunities. Simple tasks like reading a menu or crossing the street can present significant challenges for those with visual impairments. By fostering awareness, we can work towards creating more environments that are accommodating and supportive for individuals with low vision. Low Vision Awareness Month is a reminder that sight is not the only pathway to experiencing the world in wonderful, fulfilling ways. 
This month is a time to celebrate resilience and capabilities of individuals with no or low vision while advocating for a more inclusive society. This next story is no longer part of the Your View section, but it's still from The Opinion, and it's called When Trump Speaks, We Should Take Him Literally, and it's by Kathleen Parker. Donald Trump's threat to essentially sick Russia on delinquent NATO members has produced a familiar reaction from the dark side. Take him seriously, not literally. Oh, really? You mean the way some of us did back in the day? Never again. Seven years ago, I wrote an infamous column based on my certainty that he would win the 2016 election, beating Hillary Clinton. Our institutions would ensure our survival no matter who won, I argued. I mistakenly averred, in one example, that Trump was bluffing when he promised to halt immigration from seven Muslim-majority countries. Ha. As we learned, he wasn't. Now he's promising to expand his first-term bans to people trying to escape the war in Gaza. In October, he told an Iowa crowd that he'd also initiate, quote, ideological screenings of all immigrants. Absurd, of course. It's not only that such screenings would ignore basic civil liberties, but also, by the way, people lie. Trump surely knows this. What we should know from experience is that Trump's off-the-cuff remarks have a way of becoming policy, at least for a time. Thus, it is only rational to take his literalness seriously. When the former president said during a recent campaign stop at South Carolina's Coastal Carolina University that he wouldn't stop Russia from going after countries who weren't paying their fair share as members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, I believed him 100%. Still more dangerously stupid, he said he would, quote, encourage Russia to attack our NATO allies who haven't met their financial obligations. Dear Sweden, are you sure you want to join this club? I'm not permitted to use the words I find irresistible to describe this maniac miscreant. Suffice to say, the prospect of another four years of Trump challenges one's commitment to civility. Would Trump really encourage Putin to invade another country, even as Republican support for Ukraine is wavering? Would he withdraw the United States from NATO, as he previously has suggested? To be safe, we ought to assume he might, especially if he were sufficiently agitated by some perceived slight or his apparent need to impress Putin. Trump did not withdraw from, and thus destroy, the 31-nation coalition during his presidency. This is cold comfort, however, as his alarming rhetoric continues. Nothing in the man's history suggests he would become thoughtful and reflective in a second term. When has he ever weighed his words before blurting them to rile a crowd or draw applause? What drives his impulse to threaten the nation's sense of stability rather than calm the electorate? At a minimum, no one running for president should talk like this. The world is watching and listening. Remember that Putin has long dreamed of a weakened NATO, which for nearly 75 years has more or less successfully deterred aggression by Russia and the Soviet Union. Putin is happy to take th Trump's threats against the coalition literally. American voters need to do the same. Here is the literal truth. Trump shouldn't be allowed to retake the White House, pull our country out of NATO, and use the Justice Department to punish his critics as he seems to think he can. Voters have to listen as closely as Putin does because Trump is saying the scary part out loud. He doesn't mean to be merely rhetorical. He doesn't think his ideas are wrong or outlandish. If you cherish the idea of an authoritarian president who has no regard for the rule of law or democracy, then of course Trump is your reward. But know this. Trump doesn't really like his supporters either. Loyalty will be no shield when his gaze eventually turns your way. There is a ray of hope for the rest of us. Trump, the would-be martyr, also literally said in Iowa, I am willing to go to jail if that's what it takes for our country to become a democracy again. Bravo, Mr. Trump. You may get your chance. 
You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Pareil for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Fiona from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. This next story is called Lawmakers Buzz Through First Funnel. It's by Caleb McCullough, and it's about the Iowa legislature. The Iowa State Capitol was abuzz with activity last week as lawmakers worked to advance bills regulating the state's area's education agencies, altering elections, and restricting immigration ahead of a key legislative deadline on Friday. The week marked the first legislative funnel, the last chance for bills to pass out of a committee in either the House or the Senate and remain eligible for consideration going forward. There are some exceptions, and budget and tax bills are not subject to the funnel. The bills that have passed out of committee will still need to pass full floor votes in the legislature and receive a signature from Governor Kim Reynolds to become law. Majority Republicans have lauded their agenda this year as a continuation of their record of cutting taxes, improving safety, and broadening freedoms. House Republicans have been delivering on the promises that Iowans have expected us to deliver on, House Majority Leader Matt Winschild, Republican from Missouri Valley, said this month. We have done right budgetary-wise, and the state's got a great economy. Democrats, though, have blasted Republicans for passing politically charged legislation that they say fails to meet the needs of Iowans on issues like wages, housing, child care, and health care. If I could summarize it in one sentence, it would be that the bills that came out of committee in the last few days is really an attack on Iowans rather than attack on the problems that Iowans have asked us to solve, said Senate Minority Leader Pam Jochum, a d- Democrat from Dubuque, on Thursday. Reynolds, a Republican, praised the passage of a number of her legislative priorities in a statement on Thursday. She proposed bills on the area education agencies, child literacy, behavioral health care, maternal health care, and merging and eliminating Iowa's boards and commissions. As the legislative process continues, so will conversations on how we deliver results for Iowans, Reynolds said. Iowa has cemented itself as a national leader, and these priorities take us another step forward. Uh, The picture here as captioned, Representatives Taylor Collins, Skylar Wheeler, and Sharon Steckman listened to advocates at a subcommittee meeting Thursday, February 15th, 2024, on a House bill making changes to Iowa's area education agencies. And it's a picture in the House of the different representatives sitting around the table and talking. Next, I'm going to read the obituaries for today. Uh, the first one is for Dorothy Adkins Levenhagen. Uh, who lived from March 31st, 1936, to February 16th, 2024. Dorothy Adkins Levenhagen of Fremont, Fremont, Nebraska, passed away peacefully on February 16th, 2024, at the age of 87. Born March 31st, 1936, in Council Bluffs, Dorothy was the daughter of Dean Adkins and Hattie uh, Catterite Adkins. Dorothy was a 1954 graduate of Abraham Lincoln High School, Council Bluffs. Shortly after graduation, she met and ultimately married Donald E. Levenhagen of Vincennes, Indiana, on June 21, 1958. They were blessed with six children. Dorothy and Don moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where Don was studying at the Missouri Synod Concordia Seminary. In 1959, as a new minister's wife, Dorothy relocated with Don to serve churches in Almond, Wisconsin, Shelbyville, Indiana, 
1966, they relocated at a final time to serve at Trinity Lutheran Church in Fremont, where they made their forever home. As a young farm girl, Dorothy helped on the farm by driving tractors, taking care of livestock, and doing anything that helped with the family farm. This background is what rooted her love and passion for gardening. From vegetables to lots of flowers, she was in her happy place every time she touched the soil. She also loved to bake and make her famously sought-after scotcheroos. Most of all, she loved family events, going to her beloved Council Bluffs, spending time with her sister, Carol, and attending her grandchildren's many activities. Dorothy's working years included Mutual of Omaha in home daycare, Hormel Cafeteria at Trinity Lutheran Church daycare, and many election years in the Dodge County Clerk Office. Survivors include her sons, Timothy married to Jay-Z Levenhagen of Fremont, and Donald D. married to Ginger Levenhagen of Indianapolis, Indiana. Her daughters, Becky Dabowski of Greencastle, Indiana, Beth married to Scott Dote of Lyons, Nebraska, Chris married to Greg Caven of North Bend, Nebraska, and bonus daughter are number seven Stephanie Buckles of Elkhorn, Nebraska. 21 grandchildren and 22 great-grandchildren. Sister Carol Adkins McKinley, brother-in-law Fritz married to Joyce Levenhagen, sister-in-law Linda Canada, and many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, husband Don, son Mark Levenhagen, grandchildren Jeremy Hobson, Matthew Doe, Jack, Jacob Levenhagen, and Lakin Reef, brothers Robert Adkins, Richard Adkins, and Leroy Adkins. Visitation will be Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, at Ludviskin Mortuary Chapel in Fremont from 4 to 7 p.m. The funeral service will be at 11 a.m. Wednesday, February 21st, 2024, at Trinity Lutheran Church on 1546 North Luther Road in Fremont, Nebraska. Memorials are suggested to the Trinity Lutheran Early Childhood Center in Fremont. The next obituary is for Gary Dean Strong, who lived from August 16, 1943 to February 18, 2024. Gary Dean Strong, aged 80, passed away February 18, 2024 at his residence. Gary was born August 16, 1943 in Creston, Iowa, to the late Carlos and Marjorie Hoffman Strong. Gary was united in marriage to Catherine Siegner on January 24, 1964, and worked for Standard Oil. He is preceded in death by his parents and brothers, Jean and Terry Strong. Survivors include his wife, Kathy, daughter, Julie Peterson, and husband, Jerry, all of Council Bluffs, grandchildren and spouses, Jima Jacobs, married to Brian of Council Bluffs, Jacob Peterson, married to Kate of Papillion, Nebraska, great-grandchildren Bryson and Adeline Jacobs, Ledger and Wilder Peterson, mother-in-law Joyce Siegner of Carroll, Iowa, sister Sharon Burren, Half-brother Dennis Jarvis married to Marcy, all of Council Bluffs, nieces and nephews. Visitation on Saturday from 10 to 11 a.m., followed by the funeral service at 11 a.m., all at the funeral home. Interment, Silver Valley Cemetery, with a luncheon to follow at the Walnut Hill Reception Center. Memorials are suggested to Hillcrest Hospice. The next obituary is for Catherine Jacobs, who lived from December 22, 1940 to February 18, 2024. Catherine G. Jacobs, age 83, passed away peacefully at Bethany Lutheran Home, February 18, 2024. She was born December 22, 1940, to Bill and Ruth Sheldon Phillips in Nebraska City, Nebraska. Catherine retired from Creighton University's Student Employment Office. In addition to her parents, she was preceded in death by her son, Randy Jacobs. Catherine is survived by her children, Greg married to Sheila Jacobs, Sarah Jacobs, Mike married to Julie Jacobs, 
and her sisters Nancy Flaherty and Fran Lieb, ten grandchildren and three great-grandchildren's nieces, nephews, and cousins. Memorial visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. at Hoy Kilnowski Funeral Home on Thursday, February 22, 2024. The family will direct memorials. And the final obituary is for Alexander T. Franz, who lived from February 14, 1988 to February 17, 2024. Alex Franz, age 36, passed away February 17, 2024, after a five-year battle with cancer. Alex was born February 14, 1988, in Council Bluffs. Alex is survived by his mother, Teresa Lyons Franz, his father, Mark, Carolyn Nusserella, brother Eric, married to Courtney Griffith Franz, his step-siblings Mo Nuara, Yasmin Nuara, Samar Nusarla, and Aya Nuara, aunts, uncles, and cousins. There will be a visitation with the family Thursday, February 22, 2024, from 5 to 7 p.m. at Heafy Hoffman Dwarak Cutler, West Chenner Sapple. Memorials to the family are the Nebraska Humane Society. Next, I'm going to flip back to the news and opinion sections here. Uh, this next story is called Planned Parenthood Bills Create More Barriers. It's by Tom Barton uh, for the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa Republican lawmakers are advancing bills that would give unborn children stronger legal protections, allow health care providers to refuse care on the basis of religious beliefs and moral convictions, and make it easier to fund pregnancy resource centers that counsel against abortion. Abortion rights advocates on Friday decried those legislative efforts, asserting the legislation will create additional barriers to care at a time when the state faces worsening health care outcomes for mothers and babies and a shortage of health care workers. Supporters contend the legislation provides additional support for pregnant women and their babies and further protects unborn life. Iowa faces multiple health crises, yet Republican lawmakers are focused on, quote, medically unnecessary and harmful legislation that only further sends the state down a dangerous path that has already deeply cracked the foundation of Iowa's healthcare system. Maisie Stilwell, Public Affairs Director of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa, says at a news conference. The week marked the first legislative funnel deadline, where most bills must pass out of a committee in either the House or Senate to remain eligible for consideration going forward, though there are exceptions. Among the bills, lawmakers advanced. Personhood, wrongful death of unborn child. House File 2518 would allow a civil wrong death action for the wrongful death of an embryo or fetus at any point in pregnancy. House Study Bill 621 makes the non-consensual causing of death or serious injury to an unborn person a Class A felony. It also assigns personhood to embryos and fetuses from the moment of fertilization. Critics called the bills an attempt by conservatives to enshrine the concept of personhood, the belief that life starts at fertilization, into state law while ignoring already existing medical malpractice laws. They also expressed concerns with how such a law might impact access to contraception and affect embryos created through in vitro fertilization, causing spillover effects into the other areas of reproductive health care. The next bill is called Medical Providers Could Refuse Services. Senate File 2286 would allow any health care provider, facility, or insurer to refuse care on the basis of, quote, religious beliefs and moral convictions without fear of retaliation. Providers could deny procedures they deem violate their religious values, and insurance companies could deny claims post-service on the same basis. Healthcare facilities would still be required to provide emergency medical services to all individuals as required by federal law. 
Tom Chapman, executive director of the Iowa Catholic Conference, said the legislation is meant to protect medical providers from discrimination and punishment for exercising their, quote, fundamental right of conscience. Groups representing Iowa nurses and physicians said there are already legal protections for doctors to exercise their conscience while balancing the rights of patients to receive proper care. The next bill requires, or could be requiring schools to show fetal development. House File 2031 would require schools provide instruction on the development of a pregnancy. Students in grades 7 through 12 would be required to show to be shown a computer-generated rendering or animation that shows every stage of an embryo and fetus development using an anti-abortion rights video as a model. Republicans and anti-abortion rights activists say the video provides a medically accurate animated representation of fetal development, which Planned Parenthood and others dispute. They note the information and views contained in the Meet Baby Olivia video referenced in the bill, runs contrary to those accepted by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Representative Anne Omsenden, Republican of Volga, said many of the facts in the video come from the Endowment for Human Development, citing the organization's stated commitment to neutrality on all controversial bioethical issues. I don't see that it is one-sided. Osmondson said. The bill is about teaching children the basic facts about human development in an approachable way. The next bill is postpartum Medicaid expansion. House Study Bill 643, Senate File 643, and Senate File 2251 would extend postpartum Medicaid from the current 60 days to 12 months, but significantly lower the income cap, so the law remains budget neutral, meaning fewer pregnant Iowans would be eligible for Medicaid coverage during and after a pregnancy, though eligible ones would receive help for a longer time. The next bill is Crisis Pregnancy Center Funding. House File 2267 and Senate File 2252 would make it easier for the state to funnel $2 million to pregnancy resource centers that promote childbirth and discourage abortion. The state has failed twice to find a third-party administrator with at least three years of experience managing a statewide network of providers of pregnancy support services. It would allow the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services to administer the program directly, the state still could opt to contract with an administrator, but the bill removes the requirement to have three years of experience managing a similar program. Abortion rights advocates oppose state funding for the pregnancy resource centers, saying they mislead women about their options and misrepresent themselves as legitimate medical providers. Supporters, including the Iowa Catholic Conference and the Family Leader, said the bill provides needed adjustments to the original law to allow the stalled More Options for Maternal Support, MOMS, program to move forward and provide more meaningful assistance and support to new and expecting mothers. Representatives for the Family Planning Council of Iowa and Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa said the bill reduces transparency for the public by removing the requirement for program administrator and subcontractor criteria to be published on the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services website. The next bill is about behind-the-counter birth control. Lawmakers also advanced legislation to the House floor, allowing access to birth control without a prescription. House Study Bill 642 would allow pharmacists to distribute self-administered hormonal contraceptives without a prescription to those age 18 and older. The order would cover oral birth control, vaginal rings, and patches, but would not include drugs intended to induce abortion. Pharmacists would only be allowed to dispense an initial three-month supply at a time. They would undergo training and have the patient take a self-screening risk assessment and perform a blood pressure screening before giving out birth control. 
Following that initial visit, Iowans could receive up to a year's worth of birth control, but after 27 months, they would need to see a doctor. Supporters, including Planned Parenthood, say the measure would provide better access to contraception for women, thus leading to fewer unplanned pregnancies and reliance on government assistance programs. The final section for this article is titled, Opponents, Bills Exacerbate Healthcare Deserts. Iowa is one of four states in the nation to have significant increases in infant mortality rates from 2021 to 2022. At least 34 maternity units have closed since 2000, leaving rural Iowans less likely to access care. A 2023 report from the March of Dimes found a third of the Iowa's counties are, quote, maternity care deserts, that they have no hospital birthing centers or OBGYN providers. Pat Magel-Jones, a retired rural family practice doctor in Iowa, said new bills pushed by Iowa's Republican-led legislature haven't fixed that problem, but have made the medical landscape scary for doctors and dangerous for patients. Doctors in Iowa increasingly are facing medically unnecessary restrictions that tie their hands, putting them in the position of either choosing their medical license or violating their code of ethics, even facing criminal charges for providing necessary care, she said. Tori Cunningham, a fourth-year OBGYN medical student at the University of Iowa, said if Iowa keeps pursuing anti-abortion policies, the state will continue having trouble attracting and retaining doctors. The politicians proposing these dangerous bills do not have medical expertise, Cunningham said. The last place that they belong is in an exam room. This next story is titled, Abortion Providers Provided Some Guidance for Paused Six-Week Ban. It's by Hannah Fingerhut. Iowa's medical board approved some guidance last week that abortion providers would need to follow if the state's ban on most abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy is upheld by the Iowa Supreme Court. The restrictive abortion law is currently on hold as the court considers Governor Kim Reynolds' appeal of the lower court's decision that paused the crux of it, but the medical board was instructed to continue with its rulemaking process to ensure physicians would have guidance in place when the court rules. While the board's language outlines how physicians are to follow the law, the specifics on enforcement are more limited. The rules do not outline how the board would determine noncompliance or what the appropriate disciplinary action might be. Also missing are a specific guideline for how badly a pregnant woman's health must decline before their life is sufficiently endangered to provide physicians protection from discipline. The new law would prohibit almost all abortions once cardiac activity can be detected, which is usually around six weeks of pregnancy and before many women know they are pregnant. That would be a stark change for women in Iowa, where abortion is legal to 20, up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. The rules instruct physicians to make a bona fide effort to detect a fetal heartbeat by performing a transabdominal pelvic ultrasound in a manner consistent with standard medical practice. Like many Republican-led efforts to restrict abortion, the legislation is crafted around the detection of the fetal heartbeat, which is not easily translated to medical science. While advanced technology can detect a flutter of cardiac activity as early as six weeks gestation, medical experts clarify that the embryo at that point isn't yet a fetus and doesn't have a heart. The rules have been revised to include terminology that doctors use. A representative from the Attorney General Office explained during the meeting, it supplements the law's definition of unborn child to clarify that it pertains to all stages of development, including embryo and fetus. The rules also outline the information physicians must document for a patient to be treated under the limited exceptions carved out in the law. The documentation should be maintained in the patient's medical records, enabling physicians to point to the information rather than rely on memory, and thus avoid a battle of witnesses in the event that someone gets brought before the board, the Attorney General's representative said. 
the law would allow for abortion after the point in a pregnancy where cardiac activity is detected in the circumstances of rape, if reported to a law enforcement or a health provider within 45 days, incest if reported within 145 days, and fetal abnormality. In the circumstance of fetal abnormality, the board specifies physicians should document how they determined a fetus has a fetal abnormality and why the abnormality is, quote, incompatible with life. The law also provides for an exception for medical emergency, which includes pregnancy complications endangering the life of the pregnant woman in cases in which continuation of the pregnancy will create a serious risk of substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function of the pregnant woman but the board did not provide any additional guidance on just how imminent the risks must be before doctors can intervene, a question vexing physicians across the country, especially after the Texas Supreme Court denied a pregnant woman with life-threatening complications access to abortion. Most Republican-led states have drastically limited abortion access since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and handed authority to states. Fourteen states now have bans with limited exceptions. In two states, Georgia and South Carolina, ban abortion after cardiac activity is detected. Four states, including Iowa, have bans on hold pending court rulings. This next story is from the University of Iowa. It's called Dorm Kept Open Due to Record Requests, and it's by Brooklyn Drazy. The University of Iowa will keep Mayflower Residence Hall open in order to house students for the 2024-25 school year, the university announced last week. Mayflower Hall, which the UI announced in February 2023 it would sell as part of a five-year housing system master plan, will remain open as the university expects to welcome more than 1,500 returning students who have applied to live on campus. The UI is also receiving a record number of applications from prospective students, according to the news release. We want to provide campus housing for as many students as possible, and we are excited to see the strong interest both incoming and returning students are showing in the residential experience, said Sarah Hansen, Vice President for Student Life in the release. UI spokesperson Chris Brewer said in an email that Mayflower Hall is still for sale, and any sale that takes place while it is still in use would be conditional upon that fact. Listed at $45 million on Realtor.com, Mayflower Hall was expected to close as early as the end of the 2023-24 school year once renovations to Hillcrest Residence Hall were complete. In documents submitted to the Iowa Board of Regents in February 2023, the university stated that the sale would not impact the university's ability to house first-year incoming students. Also included in the housing master plan are renovation projects for other existing residence halls at a predicted cost of between $5 million and $10 million per project funded by university housing renewal and improvement funds and the construction of a new residence hall for returning students. Preliminary and pre-designed cost estimates for the new hall fall between $40 and $60 million, according to the documents, and would be funded by Mayflower Hall's sale and borrowing. Brewer said in his email that there are no updates to the housing master plan to share at this time. Mayflower Hall is one of 11 residence halls on the UI campus. In its February 2023 announcement, the university stated that Mayflower Hall is generally the least requested residence hall and has the most students choosing to move to a different dorm. Students living in Mayflower are also shown to have lower grade point averages and lower retention rates. Built in 1968 and located just over one mile from the main campus, Mayflower Hall currently houses 888 students and can fit more than 1,000. It is made up of suite-style rooms equipped with kitchens and bathrooms. 
The university plans to add additional study places in single rooms for the upcoming year, and more supports and amenities may be offered, according to the news release. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Fiona from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.